Good morning, good morning, everybody. Bonjour à tous. Salamat pagi. It's great to be here. Thanks very much to EIT Manufacturing and Business Vienna for bringing me out here. So I live in Zurich. I'm originally from Germany. I spent 17 years in the US. So if I speak too quickly, that's because in America, if you speak slowly, people leave. Uh, so I'll try to slow down a little bit. So uh, I'll explain to you what exactly I'm doing. You know, most people don't know what a futurist is. Um, it's not, as they say in German, a Zukunftsforscher. Uh, that's another ver variation of it. Really what I do is I observe what's happening and I try to zoom forward 10 years into the future and I try to see what I find there. And then I keep looking. And then basically I try to develop an intuition as to what is next and what is coming. And then I come back to today and my company helps other companies and governments and people around the world to turn that into reality. I'll give an example. Ten years ago we had a great meeting with the heads of the German car making industry ten years ago. All the CEOs of various, one company but all of their CEOs. Uh, we had a great conversation and I had five other colleagues and we're talking about autonomous driving, electric cars, uh, car sharing, mobility, ten years ago and there was uniformous laughter uh, in the audience when we said that you can actually have an electric car that actually goes more than 50 kilometers and that some people may not have a driver's license because they're car sharing right? or they're, they're riding. Right? And what do we have today, right? The future of the car industry, I always say the future of the car is not to have a car. But I think we will have cars. But it's completely different than before. Having a car is a service now. It's a mobility system. The car companies are service providers. They're not actually manufacturers. But I'll get more into that detail a little bit later. And so I want to say basically what's happening now, our world is going to change more in the next 10 years than the previous 100 years. That's hard to believe. The previous 100 years, World War II, the nuclear bomb, the internet, and so on. But the next 10 years, all the things that were science fiction are kind of happening now. 3D printing, we talked about for 30 years, finally actually working, I'll show some examples. Uh, synthetic biology, doing stuff that was in nature, bringing that over to engineering. Right? nanotechnology and of course battery technology now very soon probably three or four years our cars will go a thousand kilometer with one electric topping and the battery will be much cheaper and much more sustainable we invent quantum computing that is total science fiction you know the, basically a computer that's not binary i mean think about that concept so basically the next 10 years tremendous change uh, tremendous opportunity, uh, considerable confusion. Post-COVID, post-Ukraine-Russia war, maybe next year, right, we're going to see a lot of things that will take some getting used to. Primarily big opportunities, but it's kind of like 1968 when I was seven years old. I don't really remember. That was the last time the world changed in a very big way, 68 to 73. And now it's 2023, two years, the next two years, fundamental change take an impact on the next 10 years. So many people say, well, how about that? You know, how can all of that be good? So in media, in Hollywood productions, Netflix, wherever you're watching, you're seeing mostly dystopia. Okay? 
you see in this idea that basically the, nothing is going to be any good. If you talk to uh, people between 25 and 40 today, 71% of European millennials think that their future will be worse than their parents, the present of their parents. In other words, the future is terrible. Climate change and war and disagreement and globalization and deglobalization, all of these things. So I think we need to think a little bit differently about this, not dystopia or utopia, which we, we can never, that's the nature of, this, of utopia, we can't ever get there, right? It's just kind of an idea. But what Kevin Kelly calls protopia. Protopia is good because we're taking a stepwise approach into the future. So, Kevin Kelly said we should be uh, confident and optimistic about the future, not because we have less problems, but because we have capacity to solve. And the capacity to solve of the manufacturing industry and everything around that industry is exploding. Things that were unthinkable before, like digital twins, you know, that was kind of a demo, you know, and now it's everywhere. I mean, looking at these charts, you see the amount of, of uh, innovation that we're seeing in technology, energy storage, genome sequencing, all of those things exploding with innovation. Trillion dollar businesses emerging, genome sequencing, the blockchain, artificial intelligence, I'll talk more about that in a minute, 3D printing. All of that was basically kind of, you know, pie in the sky science fiction. And now we have the price of technology making everything cheaper. I always say jokingly, everything gets cheaper in technology except for the iPhone, yeah, which for some reason keeps getting more expensive. That's the trick of, uh, the genius trick of Apple. But basically, this is Metcalfe's law, you may know, that production increases uh, doubles, price drops 50%. So the stuff that we're seeing today, like holograms, uh, holographic transportation, which I've used for speaking, used to cost a million dollars, now it's 100,000 euros, and in five years it'll be 20,000 euros, and then it'll be like WhatsApp. So this is happening everywhere, and that means, for example, 3D printing of aircraft parts. Right? Now the airplane will have eventually not a quarter million parts, but it will have 50,000 parts that have to be shipped. So manufacturing could be done on demand. Again, it's been promised for a long time, <laughs> but it's finally actually happening. And if we look at what's happening with energy, energy tran transition investments, people are investing everywhere like crazy. This is the next digital. Whether it's nuclear power, next generation, energy storage, electric vehicles, that is the place to invest. Nobody in their right mind will invest in gas and oil in five years. And absolutely nobody is going to buy a car with a gas engine in five years, except for maybe you're a fan of the noise or the smell or old-fashioned, just of course that will continue, but uh, think about this, we already have, uh, I think last quarter was the first quarter in Europe where people were buying more electric vehicles than regular vehicles with gas engines. So it's hard to believe that how quickly that's happening. Also, the concerns of people have changed, top concern, climate change, public health, technology regulation. I mean, this is everywhere, right? We're seeing huge patterns of change. So the way this curve is going is totally exponential. Moore's law, Metcalfe's law, Wright's law, leaping. Consider yourself lucky, you're entering the leap age. When you're my age, that's a little bit weird because we're used to linear change, you know? 
and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, it's exploding, 4, 8, 16. So that means in the next 10 years, our kids are going to be at 256 in 10 years. That's 80x of innovation today. Another 10 years, a billion. I mean, think about that, right? 20 years from now, a billion times as much power of technology. That's probably too much power of technology when we think about it like this. But basically, it's safe to say science fiction is becoming science fact. And that offers huge hope for the entire manufacturing industry, pretty much for every industry, but especially manufacturing because of the physical products and the physical nature of building things. So now we're able with nanotechnology and synthetic biology to build things completely differently. I'll show you a chart of this in a second. And that means our future is, as Hemingway liked to say, gradually, then suddenly. Don't think for a moment just because something didn't work 10 years ago that it can come back now and actually happen. Some things never really happen, like the metaverse, right? <laughs> yeah, it was an interesting idea, but it's, you know, it may happen in 10 years, but questionable. But a lot of things are like this. They go very slowly, and then they just, boom, they're here. Remember Spotify and digital music? I used to be in the music business, and we always thought music is moving to the cloud, and we're going to hit a button and play any song. That didn't happen for a long time. But when it did happen, most of you have Spotify or Apple, I'm sure, right? Now you have 85 million songs at the tip of the button for 10 euros. This is gradually and suddenly. So when you're in the manufacturing business, you have to think about this. What's going to leap and when? I'll talk about AI in a second, why we kind of have this magic moment in AI. You could safely say that gradually and suddenly has arrived for AI which means that we're kind of at this book uh, printing moment, like the invention of the printing press. It's kind of like that. All of a sudden, things are different. Not all of a sudden, but it kind of feels that way. So, 3D printing. 3D printing is happening in America, it's happening in China, it's happening in many places where they have more space than in Austria or in Switzerland, where I live. Entire villages are printed in China and in the US. I mean, they're ugly houses, right? Yes. But you can probably make them prettier. They even print the furniture. Right? Next thing they're going to do is print the people. That will be later. Uh, and then we have this. Right? We have this possibility of robots doing the work. This is a VHL robot that unloads a truck. I don't think that will be the standard anytime soon because it's going to be too expensive for some time. But it's interesting to see the robot can actually do this. You know, 10 years ago, the robot will destroy the whole factory trying to unload the truck. Yeah. And now this is normal. Now we have ships that sail with wind. I mean, talking about science fiction, we're back to what it was, I don't know, 10,000 years ago. Put up a sail and go. And it's actually working. This could be the solution to the shipping business. Can't be done with the airplanes, obviously. There's a company in, uh, in here in Austria. I just met the, the inventor, uh, a plane called Manta. I think it's called Manta, right? That flies on hydrogen or on, on electric energy. So those, these things are happening. They used to be completely unreasonable, and now they're here, like this one. We have some sound? Sound, yeah. She's obviously not wanting to talk today. Let's give that a try again. 
Annika, I want to ask you about the happiest day of your life. Can you remember that? Of course. The happiest day of my life was the day I was activated. There's nothing quite like experiencing life for the first time, right? It felt absolutely incredible to be alive and interacting with people. What about the saddest day of your life? Tell me about that. The saddest day of my life was when I realized that I would never experience something like true love, companionship. Well, that's just fine with me, not true love for a robot. But anyway, amazing, right? It's really what this is the, the combination of chat GPT and language models and speech recognition and all the robotics and stuff coming into a humanoid product. It sounds really real, of course, the, the computer has no idea what, what is happening. It's, but it's not recorded, it's actually live. So, mind-boggling science fiction, science fact. This is driven by three revolutions. Consider you, yourself lucky again to be at that point where you have three revolutions at the same time. The first one, the digital revolution, which is still ongoing. But this is actually being trumped by the second one, the sustainability revolution. So first, everything goes digital, then everything goes green. That's where we are right now. And make no mistake about it, it's not going to be held up because of the ongoing war, Ukraine-Russia. This is a kind of a buffer, you know, it's kind of a damper on this whole thing. But basically, this is 100x of the digital revolution. And the sustainability revolution is possible because of the digital revolution. They're hanging together. So if we have the right technology, which we already do, you know, solar panels have gotten 98% cheaper. And many countries like India and Brazil, it's already cheaper to make a solar plant than to build a coal plant. So these things are leaping. And of course, next generation nuclear, whole different debate, what's happening with that. But mind-boggling changes coming in our lifetime. In the next 10 years, we're going to switch from the fossil fuel economy to the circular economy, to the renewable economy in 10 years. That basically means it's an effort of 150 trillion euros per year right, that we're going to shovel around. So mind-boggling changes here. The, uh, currently, the oil industry is making a profit of roughly 2.5 billion per day. Profit. Okay. Now, that profit is going to shift in a, in a whole different direction. The biggest company in the world today is Aramco, the Saudi Arabian oil company. Talking about making good money, doing very bad things. But this is still normal. And it is going to shift very quickly. The third wave is even, even more powerful and even more opportunity, uh, the purpose revolution. We are already asking, what is the sense of all of this if it doesn't create a better world? Like social media. There's no purpose in social media if it's going to make a mess, and it has. I mean, social media is single-handedly responsible, maybe not single, but largely, right, for the demise of democracy. That is because we see all these bad things on social media. We believe that everything is bad, uh, and we vote for the wrong people. So we end up in a situation where all of these waves together are gigantic change in every possible way. I think 95% of that is very good because it will create a different world. Uh, we're going to end up with a different economic logic. And frankly, you know, if you're looking back at the past, people talk about capitalism, socialism, communism, you know, populism. All of that is totally useless. 
The only question we have to ask for, is our economy fit for the future? Are our jobs fit for the future? Are our kids being taught the right thing? This is really what matters most. All of the old definitions, whether this is a socialist thing or a left or right, are going to be utterly useless because we are entering climate emergency, like COVID emergency, but 100x. And that creates entirely different frameworks. And I'll show you where that's going to take us. Basically here, if we take all these things together, it's safe to say one thing, the future is not an extension of the present. Whatever you've been doing in the last 20 years to be successful is very, very, very unlikely to continue or be the same. You are very lucky if parts of it continue. Ten years ago, I used to write research reports and sell them for a lot of money. That's gone now. People ask ChatGPT or Google Trends right? or watch my YouTube videos so they don't have to ask me. Business model change, and our world is going upside down. So I'll give you an example of this. I think it's really quite obvious in the car industry, uh, charted by The Economist. You see on the left the black box that is in combustion engine, the ICE. That was the majority of sales. Now the car industry is morphing to go towards software and electric vehicles. 2030 is maybe a little bit optimistic for this number. <laughs> but the future of the car is about software. That is the great thing about Tesla. The car is not good. I, I don't like Teslas. I, I love BMWs and stuff. But it brought the revolution that the car is a new car when you get a software update. And cars are experiences now. Exponential, convergent, and combinatorial. So four big technology trends impacting manufacturing. First, of course, information technology, which is a bit of an old hat but energy and climate tech, changing all the possibilities of what we can do there, synthetic biology, biotechnology, which I'll talk a little bit more about in the next chapter, and ultimately, artificial intelligence, AI tech. When we bring all those four together, hurry up now, then we have the perfect storm. If you ignore this, you are in deep trouble. <laughs> <laughs> because basically this is going to come very, very quickly now, much quicker than we ever anticipated. We didn't think we were going to have a chatbot that we can ask personal questions or use as a therapist. I mean, if you're into AI, then you would know that eventually it had to happen. But it happened now. And what's just now happening with AI and ChatGPT is going to be repeated with quantum computing, nuclear fusion, you know, big changes in society. And manufacturing is right in the middle of all of these things. Creating huge opportunity. And for the first time, it is actually possible to be sustainable in economic terms. It wasn't really possible 15 years ago. And now the only resistance to, we, to, do, to that that we have is policy. And being stuck and having the wrong people in charge. But clearly, you can say climate emergency is going to be very, very easy to track this year and the following years, because we anticipated large changes in climate technology and climate, say, 20 or 30 years, but turns out some of them are already here. So we're feeling the pain and the challenge. So quickly about biotechnology. 
This is a huge shift in manufacturing, as uh, research shows from, from uh, Horowitz Partners, one of the biggest in, uh, investors in the US, where they say synthetic biology becomes the new manufacturing revolution. What is synthetic biology is really using technology to do what was done in nature, right? in a very simple way. So next generation bioeconomy, deeper understanding of systems, and this is what BCG says, by the end of the decade, synthetic biology could be used extensively in manufacturing industries that account for more than a third of global output. I'll give you some examples of what that means. I'm sure you're investigating this already in your companies, but here's a really great chart that just came out from, also from BCG, showing basically what's happening. We are able to build products from synthetic components that used to be in nature before, like fermentation and cultured meat and fuels and airplane fuels and all these things that we know about. Take a look at this in the next zero to five years. Meat, agriculture, beauty products. It's a very big business. Bio-based pharmaceuticals, five to 10 years, chemicals, textiles, food. The last one, unfortunately, is fuel. Being able to build fuel with biosynthetic technology. Well, that's at least 10 years away. It's going to probably come along with uh, nuclear fusion. And at that point, we, we have all these options. But interesting to see, the solution isn't just one thing. It's all of them coming together. We're going to solve the green energy and the, the climate change crisis by resorting to all of those at the same time, not just one of them, not just hydrogen or, or sustainable airline fuel, but all of those. Here's a clip from a German company that makes spider silk. And that used to be uh, derived from spiders, of course, but, but today they can do it in the factory. It's the most resistant textile you can possibly buy, resistant to bullets, if you wish, right? so be good in certain circumstances. Uh, but, you know, this is not possible to rebuild. Right? You put that together with 3D printing, you can see what's happening here. We're going into a world where basically Anderson Horowitz says, the new era of industrialized bio enabled by AI is a functional shift in biology from science to engineered approaches. And it will be the next industrial revolution in human history. So that's definitely something to look at. I think it's a really, really powerful topic. And basically what's happening here is we're seeing 3D printing at the same time, 3D printed medication on demand, printing your pill on demand, 3D printed food. I know it sounds disgusting, right? But, you know, there's lots of places like Hiltel that have it in Zurich, and it's, you know, personally, I don't like the taste very much, but, you know, we can see Bill Gates and Richard Branson have invested in this, and people are saying in 10 years that meat, parenthesis, which is actually from, you know, cells of cows or whatever, not dead cows, but live cows, that will be one-tenth of the price of regular meat. Protein problem solved. There are lots of side effects on this, which I can't get into, but, you know, this is basically what's, what's happening here. We're going to solve the food problem, right? Food and agriculture, food is 26% of CO2, particularly livestock and agriculture. We can solve that problem with 3D printing and synthetic biology and vertical farming and 10 years and feed 10 billion people. Yeah, so that's very, very big changes that we see here. Bottom line is this, if you print this out, I'll send you the slides later, I'll put up the slides. Green is the new digital. 
Sustainable is the new profitable. Today, we ask the question to a company or a CEO, how much money are you making to be interesting? That question is going away. That's just part of a larger question is, what are you doing that's going to be any good? How are you going to be sustainable? How are you going to put everything in one place? I'll come back to that in a second. So information technology and AI, you take those two things together, infotech and AI tech, that's the future of manufacturing apart from the sustainable part. Smart technology, smart everything, better processes, less pollution, less waste, uh, more intelligence, more analytics. I mean, it's completely obvious it's not rocket science, but uh, it will revolutionize everything that we do in this sector. What is artificial intelligence? Just to make sure everybody knows. It's turning information and data into knowledge. Demis herself is from DeepMind, now owned by Google. Define it like this. If a machine can take data and information and make knowledge, what in the world do we do? Right? Isn't that supposed to be what we do? Well, of course, you'd be surprised. The knowledge of machines is not the knowledge of humans. Right? A machine knows nothing about real life, you know, physical life. It has no smell, no tastes. It has numbers. A machine can see or understand reality to, uh, some people would estimate, roughly 3% of human reality. They'll get better, right? but they don't live in the real world. So it's very interesting to realize this. You know, in the beginning, we have this, what I call IA. This is really what we do today. And that is the future of manufacturing, uh, intelligent assistance. No longer stupid machines, stupid software. Just more intelligent, but not thinking, right? not conscious, not aware. Far from it, just getting a better job done. And the next level is this more general intelligent machines. In many ways, you could say maybe Google Maps is a little bit like this. It thinks, parenthesis, uh, in the sense of combining. What we do not want is the last one, general intelligence. We do not want machines that are generally intelligent like we are generally intelligent. You know, we have emotional intelligence, social intelligence, kinesthetic intelligence, emotional intelligence. I don't want the machine to have that. And why? I want a machine to do the job, to just get the job done, take it away from me, help me do my job. I don't want the machine to become like me. So I think we're going to see lots of regulation here. Stuart Russell, who runs UC Berkeley's AI program, he says, intelligence means having the power to shape the world to your interest. Do I want a machine with an IQ of a billion connecting to other machines? They don't have to have any agenda or be evil. It could just be a mistake. The joke in the AI community is, if you tell an, an AI system to solve climate change, you know what they would do, right? Kill all humans. Problem solved. I mean, that is the logical answer. Yeah. Not a good answer for, you know, for practical purposes for us, but a logical answer. So, AI is the new electricity. You couldn't run your factory, whatever you're doing, without power, and now it's going to be the same with AI. We should just replace the word AI with IA, I think be more comfortable. Intelligent assistance. That's really what goes on. So here's an example from Salesforce. They have an app called Einstein, where you can query your Salesforce contacts and find out how you can email somebody, follow up on a contact, make a pitch. It does that all for you. Yeah, it's 
kind of, you know, basic. <laughs> but I think if you're in the business of following up on leads, you know, very powerful stuff. Here's another app called uh, C3 Generative AI that if you have all your systems connected in the factory, you can query it and say, what is the biggest impact risk on liability? And it will check your systems and do all that real time and give you feedback what your weaknesses are, are in the system. Of course, again, understanding that this AI does not know anything that's not in the system. Right? So it is not something you want to rely on, but it's definitely very helpful to have. So, uh, being a lazy futurist, I went to GPT-4. I'm a pro subscriber, and I wanted to ask it, you know, what it will do for manufacturing. So, the question is, what are the most exciting benefits of using AI in the manufacturing sectors? You can try this yourself on OpenAI. And basically, gave me a bunch of in interesting answers. I'm going to zero in on this. AI presents several exciting benefits, for example, in analytics, so seamless integration into existing systems, transformative uh, potential. Uh, you know, it's not something that you don't know, but it's a good reminder, right? I mean, enhanced productivity, improved quality control, efficiency in supply chain, all the stuff you want. And you can drill deeper and ask questions. So it's quite powerful. At the same time, it's a bit like a parrot. You know, it's, it's just giving you back what it has found. It doesn't think, it doesn't know any of these things. It just kind of compiles it quite nicely. So I'm with this chart. This is from uh, IDC that shows what is the big incentive of using IA, intelligent assistance. The answer is for manufacturing, nuts and bolts, improve efficiency, improve customer experience, improve employee, da da da. It's like that. And for the next three or four years, that's the program if you're manufacturing just to do all of those things that you can do to make everything better, not to fire people like IBM has said. They're going to lay off 7,000 people because of AI. That's not going to work. Right? And uh, I think uh, IBM has made several announcements about AI that didn't work. <laughs> Nevertheless, they have a lot of amazing technology. So really what's happening here is you know, we should be careful, as Paul Saffo says, we should never mistake a clear view for a short distance. A machine replacing people at work is a clear view, but it's not a short distance. So also we have to keep in mind what's really happening is that a person with technology, in this case AI, will always do better and replace people without technology. That's not new. But the answer on that is also that a per just a technology, just AI will not replace people because we still need humans. So let's talk about what's happening here with humans. Right? Basically, when we have exponential technology, like a robot that can think, that can be creative, that can imagine, that can reason, as OpenAI says it should, would understand the world in its way. To that, I would say, you know, that's really interesting, but too much of a good thing could also be a very bad thing. It's like anything, smoking, drinking, eating, right? More people die from obesity every year than from hunger. Too much of a good thing. The same thing could be true about AI. So we have to take a look and say, okay, what do we do to prevent this? And especially in Europe, you know, we're kind of obsessed with this topic in Europe. <laughs> Technology doesn't have ethics. It doesn't know our values. It doesn't care about our feelings. Technology doesn't understand humans. It can simulate them. That's completely different. 
Technology is a tool, not a purpose. And so we have to ask this question, and this is why I'm with the uh, European Commission and trying to find a way to regulate this, when it goes too far. What are the rules? I mean, if you're looking at the oil industry, the banking industry, the telecom industry, they are regulated for a reason, to make it work better. Technology? Mm, no. And that can continue, especially when we're talking about table stakes like artificial intelligence. So here are the problems. Alignment with human values. AI knows nothing about that. Again, if you tell an AI a mission, like, go get me coffee, and it's an absolute mission, it would do anything to get you coffee, including killing everybody else at Starbucks to get you the coffee first. That's the mission. Not aligned, right? Real problem. Trustworthiness. Can you trust a system that doesn't really know reality? Well, like Google Maps. You know, do you trust Google Maps? Well, the answer is mm, kind of. You know. We use it, but we don't really trust it like we trust you know, our spouses. So that's a really important topic. So now we have all these people posting about open letters, right? You heard about all of that. I signed most of them also. Because I, I do think we have to sit down and talk about what do we actually want with this? And what's the outcome? When we have intelligent assistance, IA, the outcome is better margin, more efficiency, maybe some automation that removes jobs to some degree, but probably not. But when we take it further to a generally intelligent, we have to think about control. So uh, I went out and I asked the system called Runway, uh, to give me the opinion and make me look a little bit different in f uh, defining that question. Humans must become more human to stay relevant, you know. If we are going to become cyborgs and connect our brain to the internet, for example, like the brain-computer interface and the virtual reality and so on, I think it could be great for certain situations, like using it as a tool, but the problem is that if we merge with technology, if we become... This is my favorite. Uh, you can see how you can use that for just these kind of tasks. But I'm still speaking, I'm still me, it just looks funny, so that's a good tool you know, to use for TikTok or whatever your purpose is. But if you're doing any advertising, that's a great tool. So, as far as sustainability is concerned, you ain't seen nothing yet. We're going on a path that has more money, produced capital, for most of us, because we're in the top 10%. Natural capital declining towards zero like in every possible way. So if we continue like this, in 15 years we end up on a planet where most of us have a bit more money, but the planet is dead. What's the point of that? I mean, I don't understand, right? We're gonna to argue to our kids that they can have all the money and fly to Mars to evacuate, along with Elon, because we don't have anything left here. So my conclusion is business as usual is dead. And that is a positive message. Because business as usual wasn't working and it isn't working, it isn't going to come back just because we're post-COVID or post-war. We're going to do everything differently. This is our chance to start again. The other very big thing that goes with that is that people want different things. Now we have this amazing curve in climate technology. People are, are saying basically in the next 10 years, the next $1,000 billion companies will be in climate tech, which of course is pretty much the same as technology now, but just climate-focused. Huge opportunity for Europe. Right? So, green is a new digital, we can and we will. And we see in this chart saying that, yes, it costs money to deal with climate change, but 
The result is new money, new possibilities to lack the transition cost. The total is an upward curve, not a downward curve. Don't let people tell you that it just costs money and does nothing. The opposite is true. When you invest there, you'll make more money in the long run, especially when you're looking at climate change costs. So my view is that Europe can take the lead in sustainable development, especially in manufacturing, by following the fifth industrial revolution, connectivity and artificial intelligence. That is what it's all about, to figure out how we can be faster, more efficient, collaborate better, and so on and so on. And we're seeing this curve and saying, well, this is going to be pretty amazing because it's big blue, not IBM, but technology, and big green, combining in this amazing curve. Right? Smart everything, connected everything, circular everything. And I would add to the top of this, human everything. That's going to be a bit of a challenge because there's so much happening down here uh, in this curve as we're seeing it now. Most important is this curve. We don't want to go in the future where it's about degrowth. I don't know if you follow the degrowth mo uh, movement. There's lots of logic there, but I think it's fundamentally a strange thing to ask humans not to grow. Because, you know, we have kids, we pollute, we travel, you know. Yes, we want to grow sensibly, but this is what we have to achieve. We have to disconnect the growth of GDP and our economy from the CO2 curve. That's the mission. The mission is not to cut off the growth curve. We may have to do a little bit of that sometimes, like cruise ships. <laughs> but, you know, we have to figure out how to do this. This is really the key. The purpose revolution. If you have kids, you know this. The millennials are coming. And they were stuck in COVID, it was a terrible time. But between 25 and 40, even 45, a wider scale, they're taken over from people my age. They're inheriting money, there's different values, they're juggling different things. This chart shows you what's happening. This is the future, of course, of social life. And the millennials are taken over, the baby boomers are evaporating. Gen Z is coming right after the millennials. Research shows in 2030, 56% of executive positions and leading political positions will be handled by people between 30 and 45. More women, more minorities, more younger people. Of course, that is not entirely true when you look at Turkey. You know? <laughs> but anyway, no comment on that future. But you know, we have an amazing thing that's happening around us, this huge shift. We're going from a shift on the focus on economy to a focus on climate. Sustainable is the new profitable. We still want to be profitable. Of course, one thing goes with the other. The thing that's happening with biological change I talked about earlier, and the paradigm shift, the biggest one is the last one, from one ob obsession, profit and growth, to four. People, planet, purpose, prosperity. And I think that's not a new agenda, it's just coming really on top of everything. Moving from this kind of ego system that we had before, you know, it's all my thing, my profits, my world, to an ecosystem. And I think this is crucial with this event and with startups. This is about building an ecosystem. This is not about owning everything. I mean, we can't solve these large problems by ourselves, not in Austria, not in Europe, not anywhere. We solve them together. And this is ultimately, I think, the direction that we're taking. I'm going to have to skip this because, you know, if I go on like this, we'll be here this evening. I was obviously vastly optimistic here with, with my with my slides, but I will 
skip sensibly to make sure you get in the summary, and then we'll take some questions. The geopolitics will have to be skipped. That's a tedious topic anyway. So the question is, what's now? And we'll take those four things I talked about earlier. That is the next 10 years. Put the ecosystem in the middle, we have our program. Right? We have to develop things in those four sectors, build new ecosystems. And if we have powerful ecosystems that become irresistible, Amazon calls this the flywheel effect. Amazon has built their own ecosystem and there has become an ecosystem once again, but it's a great example for how you can do this. So, key bullets, the three revolutions. You should know what's coming, you should read up about them, you should spend about 45 minutes per day in the future. And I'm not talking about watching Netflix or so, I'm talking about reading the right books, getting informed what that means, uh, why green is a new digital, why sustainable, is the new profitable and how we're going to change that. The stock market is shifting to support this approach because the stock market knows we continue in the old direction of just one purpose, right? one profit. It isn't going to last. The last part is, let's focus on this. Let's not worry about machines that can be like humans. I think that's ridiculous and, and uncontrollable too and dangerous. Let's worry about how the machines can get the job done. That's what they're supposed to do. I want machines that are competent, not conscious. And the last one is, let's keep the humans inside. Let's not use technology to fire people, or to terrorize people, or to make them compete with robots. Let's keep the human inside. And especially in technology like AI, we should always keep the human in the loop. It's called HITL in tech language. Always, especially when it's mission critical. You do not want to substitute human judgment in important matters. You just want to use the other tools to get better with the speed and the competency. So the bottom line is you need these. I call this a future mindset. You can buy this on Amazon. No, just kidding. It's from World War II. The future belongs to those that can hear it coming. David Bowie said, who was an ingenious futurist, in fact. And this is what we have to do. So I'm going to ask from you, as my final words here, 45 minutes every day in the future. If you do this, you'll find in a year or two, you're way ahead of most other people. That is the best thing you can do for your job. Thanks very much for your time. Wow, uh, when we have chosen our title from black to green, it seemed so easy and one-dimensional, and now you're creating all those you know, questions and uh, perspectives that need to do a lot of thinking. I see a lot of people here who started already thinking in this direction. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Exciting. So, uh, how often will you have the chance in your lifetime to ask Gert Leonhardt personally some questions you might have? Well, now is a good one, so go ahead. Who has a question? You can also just comment, otherwise I'll keep on ranting. No, there's a question. You get a microphone, hold on a sec. Great talk, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, you mentioned quantum computing. What is your vision and uh, where do you see the, the horizon? How far from today to actual real-world applications? Thank you. 
Yeah, great question. There's five kingmaker, I call them the kingmaker technologies uh, that make kings, so to speak, create domination. One is artificial intelligence. So if you know what to do there, you, you can come out ahead in so many ways. And this is military, nations, companies. Right? That's why we have the gold rush right now. The second one is quantum computing, which is basically non-binary computing. Uh, okay, the simple definition, <laughs> supercomputing. Okay, which means a computer has basically endless computing power. So if we were to run our entire operation with digital twins in the cloud, you know, we need a lot of computing power. And that goes with the next one, which is nuclear fusion, the third kingmaker. Lots of countries working on this. Nuclear fusion is the reverse of fission, which means nuclear power that's not polluting. And we can build a reactor that's a size like this. And that's what we need to run the computers. <laughs> so that's in progress. People say, optimistically speaking, 10, 15, 20 years. When that happens, abundant energy, like abundant music on Spotify, right? we pay very little and we get everything we need. 15 years away. The fourth one is genetic engineering, the fourth wave of this, right? the, the kingmaker. That means change in the human genome uh, and synthetic biology, that's the fifth one, comes right along with that. So creating different products from manipulation, from fermentation, from engineering, biology, and so on. So basically those things are coming together and they're creating a huge amount of discussion about how we can actually go about this. So Russia has said and China has said if they have invented quantum computing and they have AI, game over for everybody else. And, and these things are a little bit like now they're becoming political topics. So we have to think about how we can collaborate. So I always say it could be heaven or it could be hell. It could be heaven if we invent all this stuff and we actually collaborate, then we can solve most of our practical problems, including cancer, energy, in the next 20 years. This is really up to us, so it's a question of collaboration. But what it means for manufacturing is that everything that you used to do is now getting a new process that may get radical improvements from the system. Uh, in every possible term, so for R&D, for distribution, for, for, for trials, for virtuality, all of those things are now substituting entire chains of what used to be normal. Thank you very much. Any other questions? We have, oh, we have a couple of questions there. Hi, thanks for the presentation. Um, it seems like you talked about things that I will talk about as a startup. And it seems like you're um, consulting policymakers, if I understood that right. And it seems like many of the challenges that are ahead for our society have to be solved by, by politics, ultimately. So I feel it's sometimes like a, a kindergarten party when I'm participating as a startup, that they are shifting back the, the responsibility for a responsible future on my shoulders rather than implementing the right policies. So my question to you is, how, when interacting with policymakers, how do you get them going in the right direction, knowing that they feel the pressure from the public who doesn't have that momentum, who doesn't like change necessarily? Yeah, th that's a difficult question, especially in Europe. I think it was E.O. Wilson, the famous uh, biologist, who once said, humanity has a problem in that we, we now have paleolithic emotions from Stone Age, right? We have medieval institutions right, and godlike technology. So 
That's not really an answer, but how do I do this? I think basically what's going to happen, you know politicians and CEOs generally don't go ahead of the public and stick their neck out and say, we need carbon tax. We're going to get a carbon tax on flying, we're going to get a carbon tax on eating meat. That's inevitable. But do you see a politician proposing that that would be suicide, right? So really what happens is what hap what's happening right now, people are coming forth and saying, I demand that we do this differently. And lots of people who are now graduating from schools, for example, they will never work for an oil and gas company. They will never, they feel criminal about that, right? They're changing the way that things are being done. And what's happening with Extinction Rebellion in the UK, you know, the group that's scratching SUVs and stuff, we're going to see that in the next few years times 100. Because people are tired of this. So basically what's happening is the Gandhi moment, that's called Gandhi moment, which is when 5% uh, of people are radically opposing and opening up, then it becomes a movement. And that's what we're seeing right now. So we're seeing a movement towards purpose, we're seeing a radical movement towards sustainability, towards criminalizing those that aren't sustainable. And that's when the politicians come in. So when we have this groundswell and people are saying, you know, we really want this to be different, especially the millennials who are going to have all the money, right? Remember, very soon, the politicians will have to come along. As we can see right now, like in Turkey, that's not quite happening yet. But very soon it will. We see it already happening in South America, where a lot of politicians are coming in that are on this kind of new agenda. Tough choice there, of course, but anyway. So in the end, you know, how do we, we have to keep asking, we have to keep yelling, we have to keep publishing, we have to keep trying and keep pushing, and then we'll find people to go in front of it. In Germany, in many ways, we have found this echo already. Right? So Germany has now made this big shift from Merkel, who was a pretty good woman to run the country, but she didn't change anything, really. <laughs> she just kind of kept it running, you know. And now there's a new thing, you know, a new vibe that's coming in there. So I think, generally speaking, the European government is doing a very good job at helping us with this. It seems bureaucratic, it seems slow. Yeah, I don't, of course, that's what institutions are. But I think Europe will take the lead on this. Europe will take the lead on sustainability, on collaboration, on finding a balance, because, you know, Europeans are humanists, so we do actually care about people. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we are running out of time, but there's a, there's a couple of things. One, uh, Gerd and I did a podcast before, so we are out on YouTube where we asked, you know, several questions and discussed several issues, and we're going to give all of you the opportunity to send uh, me, Teresa, anybody uh, of our team personally an email with a question to Gerd, and we're going to do an after podcast together that we're going to put out and try to answer all your questions you may have. Thank you again, Gerd, for joining us. It was a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.